Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear another John Williams classic score for the 1981 film Raiders of the Lost Ark. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. The story of Raiders of the Lost Ark begins on a beach in Hawaii in 1977. George Lucas retreated to Hawaii on the opening weekend of Star Wars, fearful that his pet project would flop at the box office. His best buddy, Steven Spielberg, joined him briefly in Hawaii, still working on the final details of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. As the two talked about life and the future, Spielberg expressed his desire to direct the next James Bond film, just as The Spy Who Loved Me was getting ready to take in a lot of money at the box office. As an alternative, Lucas suggested a different kind of action hero, who wore a dirty fedora instead of a crisp tuxedo. This hero's name at the time was Indiana Smith, which Spielberg immediately suggested should be changed. Before the two returned to the mainland, Spielberg was in as director of a planned trilogy of films about the archaeologist Indiana Jones. Hollywood was abuzz about production of this movie, notably the collaboration between Lucas and Spielberg. I read a couple of archived articles from Variety and The Hollywood Reporter that were optimistic that Raiders would be the top movie of 1981, and this was before one frame of film had been shown. All of the crew on the film came from either the Star Wars series or had worked only with Spielberg on his films. As far as I could tell, John Williams was the only person who worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark who had previous experience with both Lucas and Spielberg. And certainly, the decision to hire Williams was the easiest one Lucas and Spielberg made. By the time Williams set out to write thematic material for this adventure film, it had been about a year since he had composed any original material for film. He finished scoring The Empire Strikes Back in January 1980 and didn't officially start work on Raiders until November 1980. Earlier that summer, he was a newlywed, having just married photographer Samantha Winslow. It was also his first season as conductor of the Boston Pops. But that was not the only job he had lined up between The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Superman 2 was slated for release later that year in Australia, with a theatrical debut in the United States set for June 1981. Williams had long planned to write an original score for Superman 2 during his summer stint in Boston, and sat down to watch a cut of the film with new director Richard Lester. But in a completely surprising turn of events, Williams left the project over disagreements with Lester that could not be resolved. The opening credits of Superman 2 still credit John Williams, since replacement composer Ken Thorne essentially rehashed Williams' music from the 1978 Superman movie, probably on a directive of Lester. So Williams walked away from the film, but I'm sure he still got a hefty royalty check. The Superman 2 score was set to be recorded by the London Symphony Orchestra, but that was when Williams was attached to the film. As a way to make up for the missed opportunity, Williams picked the LSO to play the music for Raiders. The score to Raiders of the Lost Ark fits into Williams' big orchestral scores of that era, especially in the composition style. And that's what I want to talk about for a bit, if you'll allow me. 
There's a book by Emilio Odesino called John Williams's Music, Jaws, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the Return of the Classical Hollywood Music Style. As biographies go, it's not very comprehensive, but does detail Williams' start in Hollywood and evolution to the famous composer he became. What Odesino does is build up to a discussion of how John Williams brought back the symphonic sound to film scores, starting with Jaws, but culminating in Raiders of the Lost Ark. A lot of what Odesino writes in the book is fascinating, but I do take issue with the major point of the book, that it was Raiders of the Lost Ark that fully embodied Williams' composing style. In his book, Odesino writes, quote, The score for Raiders stands out for its more frequent and emphasized use of Mickey Mousing and for its meticulous reenactment of classical music cliches, end quote. With that quote, he's comparing the compositional styles in Raiders of the Lost Ark to Jaws and Star Wars, which he also highlights in his book, but not in the meticulous detail that he does for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Simply put, he thinks Raiders is the film that scholars should use to best understand why John Williams' music stood out in this period of time. Odesino uses three points in his analysis to praise the Raiders' score. References to past scoring ideas from the 1940s and 50s, the use of sync points in the music to highlight a particular action, and the light motif that uses music specifically for a character or characters. I don't argue that Raiders is not a good example of all this, but Jaws is the film Odesino should have used to make his argument about Williams' compositional style. All three elements are in Jaws, which is one reason why it helped the film, won Williams an Oscar, and remains one of the few musical scores that elicits a genuine response from the listener. And Jaws was released six years earlier, and probably was a guide point for Williams in writing the score for Raiders. I want to say that I am absolutely not downplaying the excellence that is the Raiders score. It's fun, it's thrilling, and it has stood the test of time alongside the other great Williams scores of that period. And if you need some convincing, I hope to do that by the end of this episode. It's very easy to see how Williams uses all three of the aspects that Odesino describes in the Raiders score, so I won't take a lot of time to point them out individually, but you will hear examples of it throughout this episode. I can tell that Williams enjoyed the assignment of writing music to accompany this film. Harkening back to the B-movie serials that I'm sure Williams saw as a child helped his creativity. And he captured that in the main theme for Indiana Jones, but not in the same way that Williams gave us true heroism for Luke Skywalker and Superman. While the themes for those two characters are always moving upward in the musical scale, Indiana Jones' theme spends a lot of time at the bottom, very similar to the character it represents. Most of Indy's exploits in the film series end badly for him, with few exceptions, so it's poignant that the first statement of the theme ends on almost exactly the same note as it started. But every hero wins out in the end, and Indy gets his victory in the music eventually. Thank you. 
And unlike the previous marches Williams has written, we don't get to hear this march at the beginning of the film. The first time we hear it is, get this, 12 minutes into the movie, when Indiana escapes on a seaplane after being chased by a South American jungle tribe. As he was composing the Indiana Jones theme, Williams had a stroke of inspiration and wrote two pieces for the hero. He didn't know which one would best fit the character, so he played both for Steven Spielberg. And as he does with pretty much everything Williams writes, Spielberg liked both themes, so he asked Williams to incorporate both of them. And he does so seamlessly. You'll hear the same musical ideas in this B melody with a little more bravado mixed in. One of the pieces of thematic material that dominates the middle portion of the film is the music for the Ark of the Covenant, the relic that the Nazis are looking to recover, but Indy wants to get to first. This is great thematic writing, as it signifies the mystery of the Ark, its inherent power, and the religious symbolism it contains. Unlike Indy's theme, the theme for the Ark has a downward direction in the notes, foreshadowing the danger that lurks inside it. And that downward direction also is what's used, usually by John Williams, for a villain. The theme gets a lot of play in the finale, but before that, it takes center stage in the scene where Indiana Jones is in the map room in search of the exact location of the Ark. There are two moments in the film that everyone marks as their favorite. The first is the scene in the square in Cairo when Marion is kidnapped. 
Now this scene could have gone in pretty much any direction emotionally, ranging from extremely dangerous to outright comedic depending on how you look at it. Once Spielberg steered Williams into the comedic direction, the maestro had some fun. And what fun it is to listen to this piece of music. I will say, however, that when I listen to it attached to the visuals and connected to the film as a whole, the scene doesn't fit. It is an important scene because it sets up Marion's kidnapping, but I wonder how it would have played with more dramatic music. This is an instance where it would be good to hear an alternate composition for the scene, if one exists. Pay attention to this melody being played in the woodwinds coming up. It's going to be very important later in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. dotted rhythm of the main melody of this scene goes away when Indiana is faced with a bunch of baskets, any of which could contain the captive Marion. Now, it's a more urgent melody this time, but it stays in the woodwinds. And then Indy sees Marion's basket loading onto a truck, and he tries to stop it. After the truck explodes and we think Marion has died, the love theme closes things out.
After Indy has recovered the Ark, and after the Nazis take it from him, and after Indian and Marion escape the snake pit, Indy vows to get the Ark back, which is supposed to go on a plane to Berlin. This is one of the best moments in the film of creating music for sync points, or Mickey Mousing, as Odessino calls it in his book. Just about every punch, every swing, and every fall is matched with a musical note. So that was just a setup for the main set piece of the film, The Desert Chase. Everyone who is a fan of the film points to this scene as the biggest highlight. Michael Kahn's editing is on point here, and John Williams essentially creates three parts of the scene through his music. The first sets up Indy's approach to the truck carrying the Ark, with the brass section belting out increasingly heroic statements of Indy's theme as it gets closer to the truck on a horse.
The second part of the scene starts with the theme for the Nazis and continues as Indy gets rid of the Nazis in the main truck and in the vehicles following it. Williams can write scenes like this with his eyes closed. There are more Nazis in the back of the truck and danger increases for Indy. The brass section has to be tired at this point, but still having a lot of fun with this part, I imagine. Now we get to the most innovative part of the scene, musically, that is. Now, I don't mean to say it's innovative musically because it's never been done before, but it's a wonderful way to score a scene and use previously heard musical ideas. Indy has been shot in the arm by the one remaining Nazi on the truck, and as soon as that happens, the heroics in the music go away. It's replaced by the ostinato that plays under part of the Indy theme. Here's the ostinato played by the violins and percussion in its original form. 
So that ostinato starts out slow, but builds as the scene progresses, getting desperate as Indy is dragged behind the truck. When Indy finally dispatches of the pesky Nazi, the main theme joins the ostinato, and just as kids often did in the B-movie serials of the past, we all feel like jumping up and cheering for the hero as he drives off with the arc. What a scene. I read that it took more than two weeks to shoot those eight minutes of film, and three days alone just for the shots of Indy going under the truck and then being dragged behind it. The time was definitely worth it. 
So we all need a bit of breather after that big scene, and we get it on a French boat taking Indy, Marion, and the Ark back to the United States. After getting his wound patched up, Indy is ready for bed, but not before being seduced by Marion. This is our first real moment to enjoy the love theme, and the scene is eerily reminiscent of the scene just one year earlier in The Empire Strikes Back when Han Solo and Princess Leia share their first movie kiss but nothing really comes of it. I would imagine this is the great Peter Lloyd playing the flute in the first 50 seconds. So all of this builds up to the big finale when the Ark is opened. Whether you are religious or not, the mystery of the interior of the Ark has been hyped up for nearly two hours, so we just naturally have to see what's inside. Once Indy's rival, the French archaeologist Belloc, reaches inside the Ark and discovers only sand, it's a great choice by Williams to not overdo it in the music. Let the Nazis' laughter dictate the mood of the scene while the piano just tinkles away underneath, waiting for the big moment. So they think the Ark is worthless, at least until the machines go haywire and weird ghosts emanate from inside the Ark. The Ark theme is finally played in a major chord as its seemingly beautiful power engulfs everyone except Indian Marion who have their eyes shut.
And then this is where Raiders of the Lost Ark almost got an R rating. The beautiful ghosts turn into ghoulish spirits and the brass section, led by the brilliant Maurice Murphy, plays at their highest registers as the Ark unleashes its true power. The ratings board allowed the film to stay PG if Spielberg added flames in front of Belloc's exploding head. The fact that they had an issue over an exploding head and not two melting faces is still lost on me. So the story goes that the movie was supposed to end with the Ark going into the warehouse, but the brief moment with Indy and Marion on the steps in Washington, D.C. was not part of the original script. George Lucas's wife wanted Marion to have some closure in the film, since the last time we would have seen her was in the immediate aftermath of the Ark incident. So the scene was added, and we got our love theme, followed by the Ark theme, to take us into the end credits. Raiders of the Lost Ark will always be one of Steven Spielberg's finest achievements. Taking what was on the surface a glossy B-movie and turning it into one of the most successful movies of all time was no easy task. But it worked, and every time I look at it, you can't really tell it was made in 1980, 
Well, except for those face-melting shots, of course. It received five Academy Awards for its editing, production design, sound, sound editing, and visual effects. It would take 12 years for another Spielberg film to do so well at awards time. Of course, Williams' score for Raiders was nominated for an Oscar, but it lost Evangelis' work on Chariots of Fire, and this is one original score Oscar selection that gets no argument from me. Though Chariots of Fire was the big hit at the Oscars in spring 1982, Vangelis' score was surprisingly not a nominee at the Grammys. With Chariots of Fire out of the picture, Williams was able to pick up his fifth consecutive Grammy Award for soundtrack album and sixth overall. But The Raiders' March was not nominated that year for Best Instrumental Composition. And there's one more footnote about The Raiders of the Lost Ark score. It was the last one recorded at the famed Anvil Recording Studios in Denham, England. Earlier in the year, the lot was sold to a developer who was set to bulldoze the large sound stages and recording studios. Part of the Raiders score was recorded in Denham before finishing it up at the more famous Abbey Road Studios not far away in London. This is where Williams would record all of his London-based scores from here on out. A lot of history with Williams at the Anvil Studios. His first score there was Jane Eyre, and he would record six more there. Well, this has been a great journey through the creation of the wonderful score to Raiders of the Lost Ark. And after working on this big-budget, full-orchestra project, Williams took a step back. Well, probably you could see it as two steps back, and said yes to working on a much smaller film. That film is called Heartbeeps and it contains a slightly experimental score by Williams that people either love or hate. As I always do, I invite you to send your comments to me via email at jeffswim at aol.com or post them on the Podbean app. I also ask you to write a review of my podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and tell your friends to tune in as well. We're approaching the end of the first year of this two-year project, and if you know someone who hasn't joined us yet on this journey, now is the time. Thanks for listening today, and until next time, the baton is down.